0: Hello and welcome to the second part in our Home Truths Talking Cancer series. If you didn't manage to listen to last week's programme, it's available on the documentaries page of oceanfm.ie. Now, while our contributors discussed their experiences of a cancer diagnosis last week, today and next week, they're going to reflect on treatment and its side effects, which range from physical problems such as pain or neuropathy to psychological, social and emotional impacts. Often the full effects of treatment aren't fully understood by the patient until they're quite far down that road. And those around them might also find it difficult to grasp the many different ways in which it can affect patients at the time and afterwards. Today, people are going to share their real experiences, opening a discussion on many of the side effects of treatment, including some that are difficult to address within the mainstream medical system, which is treatment of the cause of the cancer itself as its main focus. Often, treatment impacts deeply on a person's sense of themselves and how they can interact with the world. These are subtleties that can be far more difficult to come to terms with and far more lasting than physical illness. Last week, we got a feeling for the numb shock of the doctor's office and the immediate consequences of that life-changing first consultation on the busy life of Clodagh Flynn from Sligo, who is managing a household of four children on her own. We're going to join her again now as she takes us back to our first day of chemotherapy treatment.
1: So I had my scans done in Sligo and I met the oncologist in Sligo. So they were able to arrange for me to have my chemo in Sligo, which was brilliant. Um, because I had a surgery, they have to wait a minimum of six weeks. So I went in and met the oncologist just before Christmas. and. I met another lady in the waiting room who was going to meet him um, as well and the two of us struck up a friendship and exchanged numbers so we were chemo buddies you know <laughs> the following year which was brilliant but um, yes yeah, so that was a very traumatic day the very first day going in because you're going in and you're having your bloods done and I had a pick line put in that day and um, the first dose of chemo um, that I had is called ac i can never remember the individual drugs but um it's an ac combination which is is just injected into you which was four massive syringes of this stuff um and one of them is known as the red devil it's red in color and it can actually um that was another thing i had to have was um a scan of the heart as well before i started that morning as well because the the red devil drug can affect the lining of the muscle of your heart so they'll do is they'll check it before you start and after your last dose as well, just to see if there's any damage done. But it's often uh, not for another maybe ten years down the road mm. that um it can induce early onset heart failure. Okay. So that's something that needs to be um monitored. Anyways, set up had that done, had the pick line put in, um and Uh, had my first dose of chemo and then you have to wait for a little while and then you're sent home but you're sent home with like a shopping bag full of drugs. Mm. It's amazing actually the amount of stuff that you have to bring home with you and um, steroids and whatnot to get you through those first few days Um, get a notebook and a pen is the one thing that I would say you know and to anybody who has somebody who has been diagnosed, Mm. give them a notebook and a pen, something small that will fit in a a man's coat pocket or a lady's handbag, because as time. well, First of all, you're in shock, Mm. you know, and every time you see your uh, your oncologist or your surgeon, you'll absorb the first part of what he has to say. But then after that, you know, you just zone out um and you and when it's and then it's when you come out afterwards that you're thinking of oh i meant to say this or i should have asked them that or whatever and as your treatment progresses the cumulative effect yeah. of everything starts piling on so your cognitive ability is um is impaired mm-hmm. definitely um so as you're sitting at home and things are happening the smallest little thing if you have a headache write it down write down the time that you've had it they say you have to take your temperature at a certain time every day so you know write it down Um, if you have any anything different that you notice whether it's a a pain somewhere that you didn't have it yesterday write everything down and let them decide that it's nothing not you you know
0: and so with the first round of chemotherapy done from here on both small and major aspects of everyday life were to change, not just for Clodagh but for all those around her.
1: At the start, I said the two things I am told for sure are going to happen is that I'm going my hair is going to start falling out after the second dose of chemo, and um, we can't have any coughs or colds in the house. You know, we have to be really, really careful with that. You know, so that's frightening for them too. You know, yeah. they're out at school or. You know at their activities and somebody's coughing and season beside them and then they're like I, I can't bring that home with me you know there's all that sort of thing too and and i remember the nurse saying that to me and she was deadly serious it was the one thing that she was deadly serious about you know because all the yeah you know your hair will fall out you know your nails might fall off they might blacken you know you might have headaches you might have constipation you might have diarrhea. You know, you might get mouth ulcers. You know, there's, a, there's a big string of things that you might get, but the one thing that she sat up and looked me square in the in the eye was, if you get a common cold, it could kill you. You know, so that really kind of yikes. You know, this is serious. Yeah, the other thing she said to me said, "It's your get out of mass free card." <laughs> yeah, be mindful when you're going shopping. You know early in the morning late in the evening when there's no when the shops are quiet uh, no public transport um, no gatherings so theatres you know all that mm. all that sort of stuff where people would be congregating and even for people coming to the house as well you know I suppose that's one thing you know dare I say it with, with the whole Covid thing the country learned to live like cancer patients live all the time mm-hmm. You know, so it was no big deal for me and for our household when that struck because we were kind of living that way anyways.
0: Anne from Galway has had breast cancer on two different occasions. From her vantage point over 10 years on from her first diagnosis, she advises people to do their utmost to try to look forward.
2: After the first one of chemo, the hair didn't fall out. And I said, remember my hair just more to fall out. And... Uh, the second round, or oh, I was awfully sick after the second round of chemo. And now I was in bed for St. Patrick's Day. And the next thing I could feel the hair was in my mouth coming off and was on the pillow. Yeah, I remember that. And, you know, and it was just going into my mouth and everything else. And actually, I, had moved, I lived my own, so I had moved home out to my home place my brother and his wife and them were there. And I moved out to stay with them. And I uh, remember that night when my heard them more going to bed and I got up and I sat by the fire and I just got out and put it in the fire. And there was a bit of comfort in that then because I was great to my mouth and I, I, mean, I was sick and oh Jesus. Mm. So the next day I put on a cap. I got in to in a week but I never wore because I couldn't bear the discomfort to it. Yeah. And I wore caps kind of and that that was what bothered me But the hair was on the pillow. Mm. Yeah, I remember seeing it on the floor in the shower hair. like, oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. I remember a woman telling me that she was afraid to go to bed. Hang off washing if there's any kind of breeze and gets to blow the hair away, you know. Brushes yeah. on sickness and that, oh, I never fed up myself, you know. I was off hope for over a year. Then I remember actually being so elated really when I finally began to feel well again. Now I would I know in St. Hoops we were told that when everything was done and all the treatment was done, that was a time to be very wary. Because you were a year, let whatever, and people were looking after you. And suddenly then you were back on your own and then that's when it hits people, your life has been, you have had a threat in your life, mm-hmm. there really was like a death threat and that's when it's very difficult but I have to say I was extremely lucky, Maybe kind of sort of a little bit anxious when it comes to the appointments after that and everything mm-hmm. else but I have to say I was, I consider myself always very lucky that I never didn't take over mm-hmm. but I know some people where it has, they're their lives because they're wondering why do they get it and when does it come back? Some people, and I would say that to, to anybody, is to try and let it go. The best gift you can give yourself yes. is let it go, you know. I remember then I was 10 years on medication, and uh, I was thrilled when I finished the medication to be done with it. And I remember just going to the GP for just a routine, something or other, and he said to me, you remember?" he said, you used to go for your mammograms. And I said, I don't know, I think I'm finished, you know. And he said, remember, you can get breast cancer again the same as anybody else. So I contacted, saying, I'd get back into the system, they'd take me out of the system. I'd get back into the system. And they weren't told, saying, what are you back here for? I said, well, the GP told me to get back in. I'd get back into the HSC system. And um, I went from Amaranth, um, and a lung showed up in the other That was six years ago. And that was at the very early stage. And they just took it out of daycare. And I was borderline radiotherapy. But they said, if I guaranteed, I would take the medication, religiously. Which I did do, and I've been off the medication for over a year. Mm-hmm. So that's it, i sit been do and I don't, yes. I don't explain it. I, I'm not waiting for it to come back yet.
3: My name is Kevin Flynn. I was diagnosed with cancer in 2011. I had it removed in the November 2011 and I was in hospital for 17 days. I came home. I was shooken off now after coming home. I was longer in hospital than I should have been. But those things happen. The doctors looked after me very well. And I was back working in February of 2012.
0: Kevin Flynn spoke to us last week. And he's very upfront about the physical side effects of prostate cancer. And we'll be talking more about these next week. His initial surgery to remove his prostate was successful in removing his cancer. However... That wasn't the end of his story.
3: Uh, the waterworks were work in and two more pads. And in 20 May 2012, I was diagnosed with the MRSA, which is, was, to me, a way, way worse than the cancer because I spent 10 weeks in hospital and two and a half years to recover from It's not easy on your partner. No way. Or any member of the family, Like it's awful hard. It changes every dimension in the household, everything within. I had to give up work. I wasn't able to drive after that. The day I parked the bus so was actually day, that Friday, was that actually the last day of it. It broke my heart for at least two and a half years. Now I was sixty-eight at the time. I was sixty-nine at that stage, coming sixty-nine, and I had planned on going on to seventy-five. I actually was in the process of buying a bus and I was going to give up all school work and go what they call freelancing. And I had two buses, I had, I had a, the second one was on a here in contact, so I was, I was comfortable, I was happy enough. Man proposes and God disposes. But it took me two and a half years to come over to the MRSA, at least two and a half years. But like some other lady there she couldn't get the medical card, but I did after that, which is bloody unbelievable, because I couldn't get it, all my taxes were straightened out. Everything was done above board. Got the medical card, no problem. And it's, it's I don't think on a pension now alone, any two people would live and go to a chemist and pay for medicine. Well, I go. To, we go to Gal- I still go to Galway four or five times a year, and the car park would cost you eight or nine euros a day.
0: The lives of each patient and those around them are corralled toward various cul-de-sacs as time goes on, propelled by the treadmill of appointments and medical concerns that dominate their lives during treatment. However, these consequences do vary from cancer to cancer and from person to person. For Leitrim footballer Martin McHugh, football was the one thing he needed most in his life and he held on to it with all his might.
4: I was um, getting ready for the season 2009. Um, I was playing with Clungish, and at this stage you now I was 39 years old. You're trying to do training, uh, trying to keep up with lads half your age, so I had to do extra training. I, I was lying in bed one night and my groins, and legs were tender and sore because I pushed myself a bit hard, and I was rubbing my groin, and I found a lump in my groin. Now, I say a lump now, it's only it's no, no bigger than the size of a smarty, but a typical man, you'll squeeze it and see if any pus come out, like, but nothing happened. So I paid no heed to it. So a couple of weeks passed, and that lump is still there. So I decided to go to see Doctor Loftus in uh, Shambo. and Loftus me was the lead team doctor, so he knows all me bumps and bruises. He wasn't sure what it was, but he thought it was a thing called a ganglion, where it's a stress on your legumes from practising kickouts. No, but he referred me to a specialist in uh, Sligo. I went in there and I seen Doctor Martin Codwell. He said it was a look as a lump. Uh, we'll remove it, and it's a simple operation, and we'll we'll send you off results. And went about my business. I was a painter at the time, and Tuesday morning the phone call from the hospital came. And it's from Martin Codwell. He says, your results are back. Any chance you come in, we'll have a chat. I says, fair enough, no problem. And, you know, And he says, which well, is what did they define, like, you know, but little did they know the news he's going to tell me is going to change my life forever. He sat me down, and he, anyway, and he says, your results are back. And he says, you have a statistical cancer. And straight away, I went into a daze. I went into a day as I was thinking of death, and I says, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And, you know, that went on for, say, two, three minutes, and the doctor was ranting and raving. I actually asked him to repeat himself because I didn't know what he was saying. It was the first time I went on my own, My only time I went on my own. So I, I always tell people, if you're going for results, bring somebody with you. And he says, look, we're, we're at the early stage. If you're going to get cancer, it's the best one to get because of the high-rate success it has. To me, myself, I had cancer. I couldn't get away from it, the fact is I could be dying. So I went off for a cup of tea anyway, and I rang home and we had a chat and all that, you know, to, to tell the news that I got. And I was told, look, you're not on your own. You're going to have support supportive family and friends. That gave me a bit of help, but at the back of my mind, I couldn't get it out of my head. I had cancer. I could be thinking of death. Now I thought it was just a simple operation, remove the test, killing Bob's uncle. It was a big enough procedure it had to be done down in Galway. And I waited for a couple of weeks of that, for, that um, for the date. And I got a letter in post to uh, say that my procedure's going to be on a Monday morning. And uh, Friday evening I'm finishing off a job in Sligo. And I get a phone call from Galway hospital to say there's a bed available. And I says, right, OK. Oh, geez, I have a match on Sunday. And I says, right, I think of this quick now. Says yes, I can come up to the hospital on Friday. Can I do a bit of shopping on Sunday because I'll have no no clothes with me? The doctor says that's no problem at all. That's grand. So because me and football are twins, like me and G are twins, like it's my drug, like and if I don't have it, I am, I'm I'm am a lost soul. So that's grand. Had me bag packed off for the week's stay in the hospital. Had me bag packed off for the match on Sunday, and went down and I got me bed. And that that Friday evening and Sunday morning came and I was going to put my plan in the action I said to the nurse I'm going downtown do a bit of shopping the commas that's no problem the doctor says you can do that so I signed a bit of paper and I hopped in the car and I drove down from Galway to Ballymanda to play the match but the game wasn't going away and we were losing the game in half time and they decided to put me in goals and we won the game it was great in one way to win the game but in another way it was emotional for me because I knew that'd be my last game. And I gave the lads a bit of a speech and all that, and the manager said a few words, and I got very emotional, but I did what I did anyway. So I got back to the hospital anyway, and thank God uh, nobody copped on there, no shopping bag with me.
0: However, Martin did return to football after
4: his treatment. I knew it was heading me as a regard and on the testicle, but uh, you, know, you know yourself when you wake up and from the procedure and all that. Is it, was, it was long enough? Uh, operation. Obviously, you put your hand down, and next thing you realise, one of your testicles is gone. Now it's a strange feeling to wake up when you when your when your testicle is gone. Like you know, uh, I'm used to it now. When like you know, but sometimes they say, little John John is on his own down there. You know, so. Uh... <laughs> but uh, it's it's it is what it is, like, you know, uh, sometimes when I when I'm still playing and diving and all that, you know, the the te- one testicle swinging about on his own, like, you know, so he lost a room down there. So but I have this thing in my head, if a doctor had told me to stop playing football, I, w- I think I'd be an open AD myself like again, like, you know, because there'd be a big row. Uh no, uh, nobody did tell me to stop because I think um, you're living your own your normal life after that. Stop of yourself if you want to stop playing football, but I couldn't see myself doing that. And regarding you know, the, the, the contact spot in GA, sometimes I do get hit down there after the mm-hmm. procedure, but as some smart heart says, look, he, he's only one testicle, I come back, I says, well, I only have to pain.' him. The chemo's after, after the testicle removed, like, you know, and on. That's very, very tough.
0: 16 years later, in 2015, Martin was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And through all of this, his incredible drive to play football saw him through. And he came out the other side to tag out for his local club in the Leitrim County final in 2017. He gives talks on cancer to interested groups, where his uniquely direct approach always hits home.
4: You're married for 15, 20, 25 years and you have to go to the doctor. There's no way out. You have to go to the doctor. And you go in and you open the door and the first person you see is a female doctor. And sometimes that can be nerve-wracking because you with your, your partner or your wife for 15, 20 years. Next thing you have, a strange ind- individual going to put your hands on you. Now, me, myself, I work in the Sligo Hospital I've been there, done that. That sometimes you have to look at the females, you have to look at the males. And sometimes it can be embarrassing. But there's a whole... Um, decency about, like, you know, we, we talk to the people first and all that, and so this is what we're going to do. if you want somebody else, that's no problem, like, there are options out there you know, I think sometimes if, if a male has to ring, go see a doctor Then they have the option of, you know, is there a male or a female, and if it's male that's fine and good, now sometimes seeing a male can be embarrassing too, because you don't want a man's hands rubbing down your back or down your, your butt and all that, and sometimes that can be evasive as well, like, look, everybody's very professional out there, and there's a lot of, um, about it, you know.
0: Martin really feels that he was saved by having football in his life through two bouts of cancer. However for many the things that normally define them or that give them pleasure or comfort are no longer open to them as
5: they embark on treatment. I'm Kathleen Flanagan, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in September 2010 and I went on to have surgery that October followed by chemotherapy for i think i had eight or 12 sessions of chemo after that that was followed by i think 35 sessions of radiotherapy the chemotherapy was very tough in your hair is terrible it's such a silly thing but it really kind of defines mm. it you know like it That's seems a very small thing, but um, you look so ill when your hair goes. I got your friend of mine to shave my head, and I remember the first time you look in the mirror and it's like, Who is this person? You don't know yourself anymore, and you suddenly realize, I look really ill, and I really am ill. It's frightening, you know, because you don't recognize yourself anymore. You see, the first time you meet people, and they're like, Oh god, you know, they're thinking. God, she looks terrible, <laughs> you know? Um, it's all that. And I remember you'd meet, after getting a wig, and uh, you'd meet people and say, Oh, God, your hair is lovely, what did you get done? People who wouldn't know that you were sick. And I'm like, oh, yeah, thanks. You don't actually want to tell everybody, you know? Yeah. Like, everything is taken away from you at that point. You're kind of appointment to appointment. There's no kind of stopping it. And once it starts, It's um, the surgery and then it's chemo and then you're so ill and Mm. then you're just kind of feeling a bit better and have chemo again. It's just, it's just, it's not your life anymore. You can't do all the things you wanted to do or that you always did. Like when I got diagnosed with lymphedema, the doctor that diagnosed me said, you have to stop, have you roses in your garden? I got proud of a rose. That's what triggered it, he said. And he said, "You need to go. You have to get them to the take away every rose in your garden." I was like, "I can't give of all my roses." But I remember my husband dug up all the roses and dumped them that time, because I'd always be out pruning and oh, pulling yeah. and at stuff. Yeah, but little things like that, you know, um, and you can't plan to see anyone or do things because um, you don't know how you're going to feel. And you don't know i have an appointment that day and then i'm having chemo then and you're just kind of on a roller coaster of appointments and hospital visits and it was just a relief to get to the end of the radiotherapy at least oh this is stopping for a while i can i can stop and breathe maybe for a little while i think you're kind of exhausted by everything you've gone gone through Mm. yeah, I think, it, and then you have, like, your mammograms come up so frequently initially, um, and then you're waiting for results, and the whole process, The depending on who you meet, you can meet such lovely people in the breast check unit, but you can meet people that aren't nice at all, mm. you know, and that make it more difficult. It kind of overwhelms you for a long time. But look, you get over it, you get over a lot of things. No, thank God I'm well and here still. Earlier,
0: living through treatment was equated with living through COVID. Isolation and loneliness can come knocking as lives are restricted and dominated by treatment and its effects. Not only this, but many of the other comforts that people rely on are just not there for them anymore. Poor appetite means they can't take pleasure from food. Drinking alcohol can affect their medication. Animals and gardening are out of bounds due to the fear of infection. So enjoyment of life becomes increasingly difficult. I cried a lot um, and sometimes, well,
1: you know, a lot of the time I'd just be sitting there crying and, and they'd be looking at me, you know, as if to say, well, not again, you know, because I'd make it, I'd try and make light of it just saying, well, I, I, can't, I just can't turn off the waterworks, you know, I'm fine, but, you know, this will pass, you know, because um, I, th- I was in a deep depression, you know, mm. and I think that's where that's where that was coming from Mm. you know i just i had no control over it really um so i went to i did engage with the Sligo cancer support center which are absolutely phenomenal um and i had counseling in there and i went for bioenergy in there and if it wasn't for for that you know i I was a mess (laughs) i really really was You know, I was in complete denial, you know, I don't need to go into that place, you know, that's for other people, it's not for me and, you know, at this stage I had lost my hair, it started falling out and I had decided to just shave it and I had long dark hair and now I have short red hair (laughs) (laughs) Um, and once I was diagnosed and I I knew what was coming, I went in and got my hair cut short to get used to the idea of it being short Mm -hmm and for the kids to get used to seeing me like that. And I started wearing headscarves and things just to get used to the visual Mm. of it. Um, So when I did end up losing my hair and shaving, I got up one morning because my scalp was sore, like to move my hair hurt. My skin hurt. Everything hurt. like I couldn't get over the pain. Levels mm-hmm. that I was experiencing, and um, I just decided, you know, it's I, I need to get rid of the hair that's left on my head. It was so distressing standing in the shower, like what you see in the movies the, the plug hole being blocked mm-hmm. and not being able to wipe your face clear of hair because it was just all fallen. So um, I decided to shave it, but the kids didn't know that I was bald for a few weeks, even after that. Because I had started wearing headscarves so mm. it didn't look any different to them mm. um, because I had to learn how to deal with it. Mm. And they are con- they're always reading it even though you might not think it. So when they eventually discovered because I made light of it they were okay with it because I was okay with it at that stage.
0: Depression and anxiety are topics that Yvonne Mara is going to speak about in a little more detail next week. However, they are things that come to many, as evidenced by this conversation at the Sligo Cancer Support Centre.
6: I said it here one night. I got uh, anxiety and depression about five years ago. I couldn't drive. I couldn't sit in the car even. I, I remember going out to see a girl in um, and I didn't drive I said, well, you're going too fast. You're only doing 30, you know. But that's how I was in the car. Like, you know? and I was telling the doctor, I said, gee, there's something wrong with you. I wasn't I wasn't eating. And I I very sweet tooth, I to chocolate, and I stopped eating that at a age, And I would be in bed at night, might so sleep half hour for the whole night. So I was go back, and go back to the doctor as well. And I used to go to casually and slide one. They said they don't like to you know, say what it is, you know? I went to it the doctor, I got the treatment. Now I wasn't well for a long time, but thanks be to God, I could come out and talk about it. People kind of talk about it as well. But I remember there was a man here one night, and he said, fair play to you for saying, because he says, I have 15 years. The of Selma, but it him anyway, I hope you know? it's, a, it's awesome place to be
0: now but remembering that support is available is important and even when people are at their lowest there is always something or someone out there that can make a difference
3: I can tell you the day I went down the last day and every, people of my age and in my time that had surgery at the time. When you get the catheter out and you're finished, you're handed a green bag with three big pads in it and you're sent out the door, oh, mm-hmm. get on with it. Three pads you had and you, you could wrap the shears in them. That's the fact. It's, through true God. It's, it's up to yourself, you body. do your pelvic floor exercises and if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't work. My pelvic floor exercises worked great until I got the NRCA, because every muscle in my body was affected. We knew the, we knew the, the district nurse, Mary Ferguson, and rang her, she says, I've got a packet in the, in the dispensary, she said, I'll it down to you. Like, even Roger's now, he's a consultant in Galway, he gave talks here, he says, We do our work, we do it to the best of our ability. The nurses look at you, but when you go home, there's no one. You come in here. That's what this is. And
2: you get, you get hints from other people as well, tips from other people, how they manage that. Oh yeah, oh yeah,
3: yeah. Prostate group. I've coming here for probably 10 years, now. And we've heard hundreds of stories, and there's no two the same,
2: no two the same. There's a lot of people availing in counselling, yeah. The girls were saying that even with the, the COVID and everything else, that the numbers increased. The girls are doing right uh, key. There yeah. is, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. There's some... some uh, uh, energy, integrated energy healing, yeah, yeah. yeah. Integrated healing. People
3: got two at their time. And I think the kingpin is the to go every day. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. that takes enough, yeah. enough pressure off
2: oh, people oh it does yeah. yeah. oh it does people come in and then yeah they go off there together in the morning yeah. the back around dinner time well people were you were talking about going right through this city traffic park oh, the it would be a nightmare absolutely Nightmare, a nightmare traffic, whatever yeah. that. What some people were doing was getting people were taking turns to bring them, you know, yeah. it's not easy to be asking people. It's you? not. Oh. Some, some of it is every oh, day. Oh, it is, right?
3: of course, five or six weeks, yeah. 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 for every day. No, oh, no, no, yeah. Five five yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: And with the bus here, they go and they have their appointments in the morning. All together. So that they all get their appointments together. So yep. then they're, they're back at dinner. They go around 10 o'clock, they're
5: back at dinner. Rhyme <laughs> I had to have lymph glands removed as well as the lump from my breast. So I developed lymphedema, which I still have to deal with, you know. It's um, it's a swelling, or it's a pain, it's kind of an achy pain in your arm. And it stops you doing a lot of physical stuff. Well, we shouldn't do as much. Mm-hmm. I get, I'm get lucky here that um, they have uh, somebody who comes every month and does treatment on. Initially I came every month and now I come maybe three times a year. It's a brilliant service. I've been available from the beginning and she's really great. Oh, this is a fantastic place. For even, to come in for nothing more than to have a cup of tea with people that we know. It's br- just brilliant. If there was nothing wrong with you, I'd do you good to come in here. Um, just come in, have a cup of tea. There's always somebody here that's not asking anything, not wanting you to do anything. Just mm. here and welcoming. It's just a brilliant place. I was that's just great. about finished my chemo when when uh, my fr- a friend of mine from town said to me, this is starting up, maybe you should go. Mm-hmm. And uh, she brought me the first night. I didn't know anyone, and I could hardly see. I think my sight was affected from the chemo at that time. and I thought, like, "Oh, I will never come into something like this again, you know uh, When the nurses down in oncology, she kind of keep on she then to keep coming. And, and then it's something that she started to look forward to so much. and there was always people coming doing talks and nutrition and different aspects and People come and show us how to do makeup. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, yes. And this one came to show us how to juice everything. What was that awful stuff? Feature. grass. grass. Again. Oh, oh, that was awful stuff. <laughs> yeah. well, but there was a shared experience. <laughs> Things we never, I would never have no. encountered in my normal life. Mm-hmm. You kind of, and if there was anybody suggested, why don't we get someone to co- talk to us about? Somebody would say well we'll see can we get someone to come and there was all sorts of stuff went on here. When it started up initially Anne and I were both at the beginning of it weren't we? Um, And you were probably too Kevin. People come from all over the Midlands here and it's just it doesn't matter where you come from you get treated the same. Everybody's looked after the best here. And another thing I, I found so much people that would come here saying, "I lost all my nails, my feet, and my hands and everything." Yeah. And there was one lady here, Angela. I work. We worked together at that time, and she was off, and I was off together. But I'd call to her, and I'd, "Oh my, my nails," and, and she said, "Don't worry about that. They will come back." She was so reassuring, and she had gone through all these side effects that I'd gone through, and she said. They will come back and it'll take a while. Mm. But she was just a great support. Well, she wasn't the only one. Everyone here has been. Everybody supports each other. Mm. I think that's the whole thing about it. You never hear anyone saying anything that isn't positive or isn't beneficial or uplifting here. It's just fantastic space. (laughs)
0: Like with Kathleen and Anne, sustaining friendships are often made on hospital buses, in treatment rooms and in support centres. At the start of the programme, Clodagh Flynn referred to her chemo buddy, who she met on her first day at Sligo Hospital. A true friend, whose subsequent
7: passing was a tough blow keeping connections to the
0: wider world can be quite daunting.
7: Obviously, listening is, is the most important thing. And if you are a friend listening to this, don't give a story that diminishes your friend's other story. So if your friend has taken the time to say, you know, I've, I've been diagnosed with vulva cancer, I've been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Don't say, oh, sure, Mary down the road has as well. Your, She's fine. And what you find is Those that are impacted by the cancer themselves feel completely disempowered, completely diminished and have no space to tell them, well actually I don't feel like Mary, I feel bloody awful and I would love um, if you would just listen to my awfulness. But you've just cut that, that off. Park the solution and swim in the problem with your friend for a while. It's really, really important. When it comes to difficult conversations, it's important to water and nurture the flower rather than amputating it and it this is regarding all aspects don't bring in somebody else if you feel if you feel that you've got the measure of the person and it might be helpful to say actually I do know somebody who's experienced it would you like me to put you in contact with them that can be very useful but don't compare them to somebody else because they'll just feel rotten if they're not feeling um, in that particular uh, space really really important
0: Friendship can see people through many of the ups and downs of treatment. The oncology nurses and hospital teams have been praised for their patience and dedication in offering a lifeline. Claudia's experience shows this.
1: On the fridge I wrote up uh, phone numbers, so neighbours' phone numbers. My sister was an absolute angel for me when I was sick, Bring me to appointments and... At the time, she had two little boys, and um, if I landed in hospital for an unscheduled stay, herself and her husband and the boys used to move into my house, you know, and look after my family at the drop of a hat. But um, I put up on the fridge um, her number and the two neighbours on either side, and then the oncology day ward and the oncology ward, and. Um, temperature because that's you have to take your temperature every day and if my temperature was um half a degree over ring the day ward or ring the oncology ward and i had the times and everything down and if my temperature was a degree over you have to ring the ambulance or you know if you're not fit to drive in and nobody's there to bring you in because in my case i was i was the adult at home so um, and then I had written down what to say if it was them that had to ring the ambulance you know so one you know the name oncology patient and air code and temperature and you know so that they knew exactly what to say and wouldn't have to be thinking about it yeah and there was one night um, that I really needed an ambulance but I wasn't I was I was lying on the floor outside my seventeen-year-old son's bedroom in the middle of the night, and I was in excruciating pain. I'd lost all um, power in my legs. I wasn't able to stand up. I was I had gotten out to go to the bathroom. I nearly fainted. I went down on my hands and knees, and from my hands and knees, I went down onto my belly, and I was lying on the floor there, thinking, "How? What do I do? Do I wake him up?" And then everybody else is going to be woken up. Who and, you know, the thing Who's going to open the gates because the gates are closed, you know, to let them in? How are they going to carry me down the stairs? You know, all this was going through my mind. So um, I'm, I'm a stubborn ass. And uh, so I didn't knock on his door and I lay on the floor there for a while. And then I managed to get myself back into my room, passed out on the floor again. Eventually, got up and into the bed and um, rang my sister early the following morning Mm -hmm. and she was there and took me into hospital and I ended up in for a few days. I'd had a bad reaction to one of the chemo drugs. That's what had happened.
0: Regardless of setbacks, at the end of the day, many of these patients are surviving cancer and the stories from every speaker in this series offer hope. Earlier, Anne in Galway described reaching the end of treatment as a dangerous time one where patients and others expect to start feeling better again.
1: You know, people have the perception, well, your treatment is finished now, so you're fine. So I was almost thinking that myself. And um, I took out the lawnmower to cut the lawn. And I managed one strip of it. And I was sweating profusely and gasping for air. And my youngest boy uh, was watching all this and um, I went into the house and I was taking a drink of water and I burst out crying. I just said, I can't understand why I'm feeling like this when my chemo was finished. You know, surely I should be feeling better, but I wasn't
0: at all. So he ended up cutting the lawn and I emptied the bucket. That's how we did it. Nonetheless, ultimately, people can look forward. To more opportunities for working things to enjoy, both small and large back into their lives There's
1: a Killary Harbour swim that happens every year, kind of late September October time and um, I booked to do the 750 metre swim down in Killary Harbour and I was two weeks into radio treatment and um, it was amazing Yeah, and it was it was just as well because my skin broke the following week so there was no more water then after okay. that like i knew it's only 750 meters you know mm-hmm. and and you're everybody piles onto the muscle trawler and they they bring you out across the fjord to mayo yes. and you swim back to galway the water was freezing cold but um i knew i could float <laughs> i didn't have a lot of strength but um i knew i could float and i you know I'll get there, even if I have to doggy paddle. But uh, coming into shore, I remember thinking I'm not going to be able to stand up now because my legs are gone. But um, I had friends there who had done the earlier swim and they were all there and cheered me on and waited me and picked me up and brought me in and helped me get dressed and made sure that I had hot food. And yeah, they were super. They were absolutely
0: super. Next week, we're going to look in greater depth at the emotional, social and sexual side effects of treatment. However, to finish today, we're going to see Martin McHugh through the months of his treatment and beyond. No matter your circumstance, his is a road that offers some hope.
4: After me third on a chemo, I was so sick. I was in agony, pain, and diarrhea and puke. And I was at my lowest, lowest form in my life. I was even thinking of death because just give me the pearly gates of heaven and I'll go peacefully. But I got a phone call from a club in the to ask me how I was doing and all that first of all. But I knew he rang for a reason and I asked him what do you want? And he says, oh, no it's okay. I says, what do you want? He says, look we've training tonight. What time is it at? I says, oh, 8 o'clock. I'll be there at half 7. He says, sure. He says, yes I will. I sure enough I had this little pep in my step that got off me ass to do something. So we're up anyway and I gave him a session on that. And I knew I pushed myself because I was we're home. But when I got home, I, I, I felt good because I, I knew I wanted to be there. I said, right, go see my teammates in Longford. I went to see Clungish that Friday night. And like that, they were going through a phase of, I don't want to go train, and I was sore back. I can't train because of sore legs. So the manager, Liam Doherty, asked me to say a few words to them. So I get in my merciful speech at, at, at that training session and I says, look, whatever happens, lads, I'm gonna be there at every game. If i bring the bed with me, I'd be there. I should sure know if things were going well when we got to the final. We drew the first game and the second, in the replay, I tugged out. Now I wanted to tug out and maybe get on to the field, but the game wasn't going away. And at half time, the game was 3-3 three, three at each. The blame game was on in typical dressing room fashion, like everybody blamed everybody. And I was sitting in the corner and I, I said, I couldn't take this anymore. So I lit the roof of me language. I more or less said, look, get out there and give me the game of your lives. And sure enough, we don't want to give me a pint. And I gone on around patting, patting everybody on the back and all that. And Paul Barden, the legend that is, uh, grabbed me by the shoulder and told me I'm going up to lift a cup with him. So I started bawling my eyes, I said, no, this is your day. Oh no, there's some speech you gave us at half time. So sure enough, I went up the steps anyway, and I looked down at the crowd, and sure enough the cup was in hand, and when I laughed at that cup, the cup, right there and then I knew about cancer. Being through what I've been through, for the months before that, you know, I wasn't thinking of death, and I wasn't thinking of diarrhoea, and that moment, lifting that cup with Paul Barnard was one of the proudest moments of my life.